Okay, take your Bibles tonight. Let's turn to the book of Psalms. Let's go to a new one tonight, at least new for us. Psalm 7, we're going to start in verse 1, and we will uh, look at verses 1 and 2 tonight. And uh, I want to ask you to think about something. I, as you know, am from Owasso. And I saw the other day on the Owasso Reporter site that uh, Candace Cameron, is it Bure, is going to be filming in Owasso and using a house there for uh, some upcoming, I'm going to take a wild guess and say it's probably a Christmas movie. And uh, isn't that brilliant? You know, Sherlock, just call me. And uh, so would it be fair for me to say since she's in Owasso and I'm from Owasso, she's one of my best friends. Is that an authentic statement? What? No. The two things don't go together. And tonight as we look at David and this psalm, uh, we're going to see that he shows the marks and displays the marks of a true believer. He's making some authentic statements here about God and about his relationship with God. Now, uh, when you uh, look at that uh, funny word that's in there in the introduction where it says a psalm of David, a shigon, uh, we don't really know exactly what that is. We uh, surmise from some other ways that it's used that it is kind of a poetic term and it's used to describe somebody who is writing under extreme emotion. It's also a form of it shows up in the book of, uh, I believe it's Habakkuk, uh, maybe Haggai. No, I think it's Habakkuk. And uh, it it shows that David, as he is writing this, is under an extreme pressure and is emotional as he is writing this. Well, that's not real surprising. We kind of find David doing that a lot as we look through the Psalms. And so many times he's crying out to God or he's making a complaint to God or he's saying something about his enemies. And one thing we can say straight off is whenever somebody tells you that the mark of a true believer is that everything goes smoothly and everything goes their way, then you've got a real problem with the life of David, don't you? David always seemed to be running for his life. He seemed to be in trouble. Now, sometimes it happened because he was a sinner. Think about the Bathsheba episode. But other times it didn't. It just happened because he was a man of God. And God was taking him through some valleys. He is, after all, the one that wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we use that so often at funerals, we just assume David's talking about losing a loved one. But it also could be talking about maybe a time when he was sick and just about died. Or it could be talking about a time when he was in a battle and it looked like there was no way out. David spent a lot of time in the valley of the shadow of death. And yet he says, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And God was actually with him when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. So David was not out of the will of God or running from God or distant from God. He wasn't pulling a Jonah. Walking with God, having the presence of God with him, and yet he's in the valley of the shadow of death. So when we think about David and we think about his life, then we need to stop saying things like, why is this happening to me? I gave money to the church. I went to Sunday school last week. I read my Bible every day. Why is this happening to me? Because things happen to you. You are in a war. You have an enemy. And uh, this world is cursed. And you're a sinner. And all of those things work together to kind of give us the idea that we're expecting to have heaven on earth. And we've never been promised that. Again, as we said so many times before, Jesus said in the world you have what? tribulation and then he said but be of good cheer why would I be of good cheer when I have tribulation because Jesus said I've overcome the world now one of the things that we need to look at as we think about this idea of the true believer and how David displayed this in these two verses is uh, Christianity and I don't mean true Christianity or even necessarily biblical Christianity I'm using it in terms of the movement. There's a movement of Christianity. 
And it's certainly not monolithic. We're very, very different. But the lost world doesn't know that. The lost world has no idea why you're different than a Mormon. They don't have any idea why you're different than a Catholic or different than a Lutheran or different than, um, you know, some other uh, cult or denomination or whatever it might be. It all looks the same to them. And we might look at that and say, well, how can they not tell a difference? I was in um, India and I was with... Um, a pastor there, he was showing me around the city. I was getting ready to catch a flight, had a few hours to kill. And uh, he was showing me around and we were talking about how India was a colony of Great Britain just like America was. Except we broke away in 1776. They didn't get their freedom till I think it was 1947. And uh, they don't really care much for the British. And he happened to say to me, we have a hard time telling the difference between Americans and British. Okay, well, that was, well, a lot of difference, you know. Uh, we talk a whole lot different. And he goes, not to us. It all sounds the same. Okay, now doesn't that sound weird? Until I thought, I can't tell the difference in their dialects either. When they speak and somebody says, oh, that's a, they're from a different state. Every state in India has a different language. It all sounds the same to me. And uh, in fact, the word barbarian came about because Greeks thought that when foreigners talked, it sounded like they were going bar, 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 bar. So they called him a barbarian. That's where that name comes from. And so uh, we also have to understand that in that same way, the lost world looks at us and they don't really know what's different about us from anything else, good or bad, cult or orthodox or whatever it might be. And um, I'm afraid, though, that it's not just the lost world. I'm afraid a lot of people that go to church every Sunday don't really know the difference. They don't really understand what a true believer is. In fact, you know, have you heard somebody say about maybe one of their kids, well, as long as they're going to church. Well, what if it's a Jehovah's Witness church? What if it's a Mormon church? What if it's Seventh-day Adventist or something like that? It does matter. It does matter what church you go to. And it does matter what they believe. And it does matter what gospel that you believe and someone believes. And what Jesus somebody is trusting. Because in the New Testament, Paul talks about there being a different gospel and a different Jesus. And he said, and they even receive a different spirit that's not the spirit of God. So what we want to do is look at the marks of authenticity. If you were to buy a valuable painting or diamond or something like that, they would give you a certificate of authenticity. We're going to look at David's certificate of authenticity tonight as we um, pick up with verse 1 and uh, we just, just do verse two, 1 and 2, okay? O Lord my God... In you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. And by that he means there's no one else. If you don't do it, there's nobody else I can turn to. Kind of gives us a clue about what he's talking about and what we need to think about tonight. So what is a true believer look like? What is the certificate of authenticity for you, for me, and for anyone that would claim to know the Lord Jesus? Okay, here's the first thing. They submit to God. And notice how the first two words in there that David uses are, O Lord. You know, it's controversial for some people to say that you cannot be saved if Jesus is not Lord of your life. And there have been all kinds of books written about it and arguments about it. When John MacArthur came out with his book in the late 80s, early 90s, kind of a watershed book, and you can still get it, and you ought to read it, and it's called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in it, he lays out the case that you don't get saved one day and then make Jesus Lord ten years later or five years later. You trust him as Savior and Lord. And by Lord, we're talking about the fact that he is royalty. We're talking about the fact that he is the sovereign one and you surrender to him, you submit to him, and you follow him. And if you don't, 
then you truly were not saved. That means you have a counterfeit Christianity. You don't have the certificate of authenticity. And uh, David uses that word. It's actually in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh. And uh, Yahweh is Y-H-W-H. They didn't have consonants. And uh, so Hebrew is very difficult. And uh, somebody in the Middle Ages, a rabbi, made some little things underneath the Hebrew words in between the letters where there's some uh, different signs that are there so that it could help Gentiles like us learn Hebrew and know how to pronounce it. But uh, it's just Y-H-W-H, Yahweh probably, and um, it's more of the unpronounceable name of God. And it also means the eternal one. It's the one who is sovereign and the one who alone is eternal. In fact, a lot of times Jews, even today, they won't say the name of God. They won't say Yahweh or anything like that. In fact, they say the eternal or the eternal one because they're terrified about using the name of God in vain. In fact, even the word Jehovah, that is not the Lord's name. That's a combination of Yahweh and Adonai. And they put those two together so that they would be careful about not saying the Lord's name in vain. It's something that they are very, very careful about. I wish more people were careful about it. So this is the personal name of God, the self-existent one, the eternal. And he's ruling and he is sovereign. So what else are you going to do but submit to him? You're not going to boss him around. You're not going to shake your fist in his face. If you really see him as that, you're going to bow before him and you're going to surrender your life to him. And that is the first mark of a believer. They have a different master and they are surrendered to the lordship of Christ. They see God as Lord and master. He's not just an addition to their life. He is their life and they live for his glory and live for his will. Okay, Number two. What's the second mark of authenticity? Well, they trust God. Have you ever seen somebody who has trouble trusting God? Sometimes I have trouble trusting God. I know you have trouble trusting God as well because we're all human. We're very frail. We're very weak. We're sinful. And there are those times when the Lord calls upon us just to trust him. And sometimes it's difficult. But isn't it weird? I mean, we are weird, aren't we? Isn't it weird that we would trust God to take our soul to heaven but we have trouble trusting God for $50 we have trouble trusting God for a job we have trouble trusting and waiting on God for a spouse we have trouble trusting and waiting on God for uh, maybe a prodigal child to come home it's it's amazing how we trust him in the big things but in the little everyday things we have so much trouble we like to take matters into our own hands we like to keep our hands on the steering wheel in fact back uh, in the 70s it was common to see people that had a bumper sticker that said God is my co-pilot you think about that God is your co-pilot that means you're the main one and God is just helping you out. You would be surprised how many people that sit in church week after week after week have the idea that God helps those who help themselves. And so the idea is, God, I'll do my part, and then when it's time, you do your part. And there is nowhere in the Bible that presents the Christian life like that at all. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, uh, 2 he said, I'm crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, God has this idea that he is going to come into us at salvation. We are going to surrender to him as king of our life. And he's going to run and rule everything and every part of our life. And that our life is not supposed to be our own with a little God sprinkled on it. He is to be the mainstay of our life living through us because he knows how to handle everything that would come our way. He's perfect and he gives us his strength, his power, his presence. And he is the one 
who takes over and lives our life. And so this God who does that, we ought to be able to trust Him with everything. Certainly with eternal life. Certainly trusting Him that He's the only way to heaven. That He did everything necessary to take us to heaven. To make us righteous and acceptable to God through His death, burial, and resurrection as our substitute on the cross. But that ought to carry over into trusting Him in every area of our life. That's why the Bible tells us things like... Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because that's rust on your trust. Okay? It's a little rhyme for you to think about it. It's, it's what decays it. It's what corrodes it. It's what messes it up. And God wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. And it really, if we can trust him to save us, it really should not be a problem to trust him with the battles and the trials of everyday life. But it is. And David said, my God, uh, in you I put my trust. So you notice here that it comes across, first of all, as personal. My God. That doesn't mean that like God is his possession and he's the boss or anything. But he is talking about it in the same way that we might. uh, we, We all know that this church doesn't belong to us. It's God's church. And yet. We know and the Lord knows what we mean when we say I'm, I, uh, that's my church over there. We uh, take possession of that type of thing. You know, Paul even said something, I believe it's in Romans, where he called the gospel, he said, it's my gospel. Well, Paul didn't come up with the gospel. Paul didn't write the gospel. It was revealed to him. That came up in the heart of God. But it was so personal to Paul it was like he possessed it. It's, it's my gospel. And that's the way David is with God. He knows him so well. He's been walking with him so long that he said, You are my God, my God. I identify with you. And uh, you, thankfully, identify with me, David would say. My God, in you, I put my trust. And it's not only personal, but God is the object of his faith. Sometimes we put our faith in the wrong things. You ever done that? Have you ever said something about um, uh, maybe a tire? Oh, it'll be okay. It'll get us there before it blew. How many of you guys have said something like this? Oh, don't worry about it. We got plenty of gas to get to the next station. Yeah, You put your faith sometimes in the wrong thing. And so uh, your faith... No matter how strong it is, no matter how big it is, listen to this, it's only as good as the object in which you place it. So I can believe with all my heart that uh, that walkway in the attic is going to hold me up. And when my leg goes through it, what does that say? It doesn't say my faith was not good. It says the object I put my faith in was not good. Does that make sense? So when we think about things, when you hear people say, well, I know I don't agree with them, but they are, you got to admire them, they are sincere. Well, you can be sincerely wrong, can't you? And So what is it that we put our faith in? And David said, I put my trust in God, nothing else. Not my circumstances, we tend to do that. If everything's going well, we feel good, we feel secure, we're happy, we're joyful, we're praising God. And then when the circumstances change, everything gets rattled. Well, David had that too in Psalm 30. In my prosperity, he says, I said my mountain will not be moved. Then you hid your face, and I was shaken. That happens sometimes. And sometimes when we uh, are walking along in our Christian life, and oh, the sun's out, and it's so wonderful, and it's so great, and the fellowship is so good, and then a cloud covers up the sun. Doesn't mean the sun disappeared. Just means we can't see it or feel it in the same way that we did. Maybe that cloud rains a little on us while we're doing that. It didn't change anything about God or in the plan of God, but it sure seemed to change for us. And we get shaken up. And all of a sudden, everything we've said before, everything we thought, even five minutes before, we're just rattled. And we're not sure what to trust. Well, tonight... I just want to remind you, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter where you find yourself, you can always trust God. He is worthy of your trust. 
He is the rock on which the church is built. He is our hope. He is our mainstay. He is our life and his promises and his word are always true because he is a God who cannot lie, the scripture tells us. And so David understands this. My trust is not in, I need to get this pressure off of me. He's obviously under intense pressure. It's very emotional. And if I could just get this off, everything would be okay. And David's smart enough to know it uh, might be easier, but that doesn't mean it's okay. You can have an easy road to hell, can't you? You can have an easy road to destruction, And David is saying here that it's not just the circumstances I want to change. I want to affirm that my trust is in the Lord. Not in people, not in money, not in circumstances, not in any of those things. You are my God in whom I have put my trust. And that word trust is a Hebrew word that means to have hope as a shelter. So why is it in the spring of the year when the big tornadoes are coming right through our part of Oklahoma City and more, where do we go? We go to a shelter. Now, I don't know about you, I grew up not going to shelters. I grew up going outside and watching. I wanted to see the tornado. 1999 changed everything. And that's that time when I remember we were in a bathroom, we had a mattress over us, and uh, the kids were little, and we had a little dog, and Jenny has the little dog with her arm around him, squeezing him tight, and uh, the dog is probably going, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and uh, she's singing Jesus Loves Me or something like that while we're doing that, okay? And from that point on, we started going to a shelter. When we lived in our old house, we'd go down the street to Ron and Alice Fuller's, and they had a shelter. We would get down in that shelter, And uh, you know what we always felt when we were down in that shelter? We felt safe. You know why? We trusted that being underground in that shelter was the best place we could be. You know what you call that? Putting your hope in the shelter. And David is saying that there are shelters that you can find, but the Lord is the supreme shelter the lord is the one that we trust in and the word trust here means to have hope as in a shelter you're in a storm you live in a storm all the time people have said before that christians either coming out of a storm in a storm or heading into a storm And uh, that really is the truth. It's a stormy world in which we live in and we have an enemy who attacks us and we have circumstances that go wrong. We have sin that causes everything to go haywire. The earth is cursed and the environment is against us. All of these kind of things are happening. There's always something. There's always something to hurt. There's always something to cry about. There's always something to get down about. There's always something that's a bigger burden than you could bear. That's a part of life. And those things are designed so that we might turn to the Lord and David says that is where we need the shelter and there's only one shelter that will do and that is the appropriate shelter the God in whom we have put our trust he's worthy of our trust he is the object of our faith and he is the shelter that protects us the shelter in which we hide he is the place where we feel peace and we feel safety and we feel the security of being with him turn to the lord don't make the lord a last resort but your first resource the third thing is that um, david says about believers that um, they see themselves as helpless and hopeless without god helpless and hopeless without god Now, there's the problem with the lost world and the lost church member. They don't see themselves as hopeless. They hope in themselves. They hope in tomorrow being a better day. They hope in their own resources. They hope in what they have set aside for the future. They hope in their ability to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. All of that kind of stuff is is the way that they live. But true believers come to the point, well, it's what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes. What is the first Beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay. Now, he's not talking about just simply 
blessed are the poor, which means, man, that, that guy on the street there that's laying on the sidewalk and about to die, man, he's really blessed, ain't he? You know, that's not what he's talking about. He puts those two words in there, blessed are the poor in spirit, because it means those who are spiritually poor. And that's what we came to understand when we were convicted of our sin, when the Holy Spirit gave us faith to believe and drew us to Christ. We understood we did not have any hope aside from Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus only. Do you remember those uh, solas of the Reformation? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone and only. We talk about uh, sola gratia, grace only. We talk about sola fide, faith only. And we talk about solus Christus, Christ only. All of those things point to the, a word that, um, by the way, it's, this is what really separates a true Protestant from a Roman Catholic. We believe the Trinity. Oh, yeah, we believe that. Believe the Bible's the Word of God. Yeah, we believe that. Uh, we believe that you're saved by faith. And they'll say, yeah, we believe that. Until you add the word only. Only. And so if you say to somebody, uh, do you believe that salvation is through Christ alone? That's a dividing line. Because so many religions, so many denominations, and every cult believes that, yeah, we'll have Jesus in here, but you've got to trust Jesus and you've got to be baptized or and you've got to go through the rituals of the church and you've got to abstain from certain things, okay? Well, the Protestant Reformation put that word only in there. Only scripture, not, not anything else. Not dreams, visions, traditions, sermons or anything else. Only scripture, only scripture. Only faith, not of our works, not of our good deeds, not of anything we could do. That it's only grace because we are all deserving of hell. All of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment and all of us, if it were not for the grace of God alone, would fail the judgment of God and spend an eternity in hell. And it's only through Christ he died on the cross. He's the one that said it is finished. And so I don't need anything else. And nothing else would help me in that situation. It's only Jesus. And so when we think about this, the hopelessness and helplessness. That's what you might have called maybe when you were saved. And you said maybe to a pastor. Maybe you said it to your mom or dad. Maybe you said it to uh, somebody in your Sunday school class. You said, I feel really under conviction. Have you ever really thought about that word? We throw these words out and we get so used to saying it. And for a lot of people, conviction means I feel bad. I feel guilty. Well, conviction has the word convict in it. And if we were to be driving along the road and we see a sign that said hitchhikers may be convicts, well, you wouldn't pick up anybody on there. You'd be watching everything out because convicts are dangerous. Convicts are guilty. Convicts are supposed to be locked up and put away and they're supposed to be punished. Well, when you say I'm under conviction, that's what you're saying. I am a convicted criminal in the court of God and I am helpless and hopeless. It's more than just feeling bad. It's more than just I wish I hadn't done that. It's more than just I got caught. It means you stand before the high court of heaven guilty as charged and you know what the sentence is going to be. And that's what the Holy Spirit uses to draw sinners unto Christ. Because when we truly are converted, we come to Jesus knowing that he indeed is our only hope. He's not just our best hope. He's not just uh, uh, you know, hope that we can hold on to when we need him. He really is our only hope. And David was like that. Notice what he says here about his situation. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Okay, When he says save me, the word save there in the Hebrew, there are three distinct uh, meanings in that word. It uh, talks about somebody who is liberated from external evil. Sometimes it just means this guy here has got a gun and I don't. Save me, Lord. Deliver me out of this situation. Okay? 
Sometimes it can mean saved in battle. Here I was. I was just about to go down. This guy was getting ready to shoot me. And then the, my buddy in the foxhole shot that guy first. And now I'm saved in battle. Or maybe the helicopters came or the cavalry came. Whatever you would like to think about. And it also means to give victory. And that's what the Lord did. You were in a state of eternal and perpetual defeat. You remember in John 3, 16, it, it gives us that wonderful verse about God loving us enough to send His Son. But it also goes on in the next verse to say that those who don't believe, they're not going to be condemned, but they're condemned when? Already. Which means that before we were saved, according to Ephesians 2, we were the ones who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's very clear in, in that uh, chapter. And that it was God who made us alive in Christ, right? And so he came and he gave us victory. I would say death is the ultimate defeat. We don't want to die. We have a survival instinct. And over the years as I've been with people in a hospice type situation, it always amazes me at how that person, even though they may be comatose, they are still fighting to live. And everything in their brain and everything in their body is working to stay alive as long as they possibly can. Why? Because we're hardwired that death is the ultimate defeat. We don't want to die. Hey, we spend a lot of money trying to stay alive, don't we? We take a lot of pills to stay alive. We do a lot of crazy things. Why are you eating kale instead of a Big Mac? Because you want to stay alive and you want to have a good quality of life. You know, death, when you think about it being defeat, uh, a defeat, do you remember what it says in the book of Revelation? One day, death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. Did you get that word enemy? It's an enemy of mankind. And that's why when God saves us, He brings us from death into life, from defeat into victory, from darkness into light, from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of His Son. There's victory in Jesus. And that's what that word save means. And so all of us have experienced that. Liberated from external evil. Saved in battle. And to give victory. Well David also uses the word persecute. Those who persecute me. What does the word persecute mean? Well we know what persecute means. Don't we? Don't we? It's when they take you and put you in prison because you went to church it's when they do what they did to Paul and Silas and put them in prison it's when they do those type of things well in the remember the Old Testament's written in the word uh, in the, the Hebrew language and the word persecute is a tad different than it is in Greek because David wasn't uh, going to be put in jail because he had sung a psalm or something like that the word persecute here it means to chase to hunt and to put to flight. Okay? So, uh, you guys are going out quail hunting. You know what we could say about you? You're going out to persecute the quail. Why? Because you're going to put them to flight. You and your dogs. Right? And when they get in the air, that's when you shoot them. Or shoot at them. Whatever the case may be. And uh, that's, that would, that's the idea of persecution. David felt like he was being pursued and put to flight. He's afraid. He's under pressure. Running for his life is the way this word is kind of used. It means also to harass and intimidate. It means to watch or to call attention to. Now I've got by that Daniel. What was it that we are seeing that we have been seeing in the life of Daniel lately in our Sunday school class. He's 82 or so years old. And uh, the other members of the government come before King Darius and say, Make a ruling and make it according to the law of the Medes and Persians so it cannot be altered that no one can pray to any other god or man for 30 days. And if they do, they'll be thrown into the den of hungry lions. Okay? And what did Daniel do? Well, it says he went home. And then he opened his windows, faced Jerusalem, and he prayed. Not once, but three times. And what were his enemies doing? 
They were watching him. And what did they do after they caught him? They went back to the king and they said, Oh, king, did you not uh, sign this? Oh, yes, I sure did. Well, then you got a problem because Daniel, they called attention to Daniel. They watched him and they pointed him out. You go through that every day. For some of you, you've got children who are, in a Hebrew sense, they're persecuting you. Because they don't believe what you believe and they don't like your convictions and they don't really care much for living under your roof or living by your rules. And so they watch for you to mess up. They watch for you to do something that they can reject everything for. That's a form of persecution. For some of you, it may be on the job. Have you ever had anybody say something to you like this? And you call yourself a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. That kind of thing. I had somebody say to me one time, and you call yourself a pastor when they didn't like what I did. I've been called a lot of things, by the way. And uh, that's persecution, okay? To chase, to put to flight, to harass, to intimidate, or to watch, or to call attention to. One definition said it's systematic mistreatment It's to subject someone to hostility and ill treatment, especially because of their ethnicity, religion, or their political beliefs. That is going to get worse if something doesn't change. And we find now that Christianity is way out of fashion and everything that we believe morally and ethically is way out of step with this world. And they're watching. And they're putting the pressure on. And there are different things that are coming uh, our way that are going to really put the squeeze on us. And that's why our trust had better be in the Lord, right? Well, that's what David was. Number four, and they know that destruction awaited them. That if it had not been for the intervention of God... There was destruction coming. Now David, in his situation, he says in verse 2, lest they tear me like a lion. Well, that sounds like fun, to be torn apart by a lion. And uh, that's kind of what Daniel was facing too, wasn't it? To be torn apart by a lion, rending me in pieces. Now what he's speaking here about is imminent. That means it could happen at any time. It's not just the kind of danger that says, well, if something happens here and if it happens here and if it happens here then in 10 years I'm going to get it it's not like that imminent means it could happen at any moment that's why we speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the church in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 as the imminent return of Christ he could come at any time we could hear the shout and we could hear the trumpet well David's situation was not imminent rescue but he was feeling imminent and violent danger torn apart that whatever is going to happen it's going to be like being torn apart by a lion now he's facing something here that obviously he can't handle this is bigger than him and it is going to get him and tear him apart I would like to think that if I were someplace where a lion got loose and came after me Uh, Wouldn't it be cool if you're the guy that's, you know, on the internet and on the news and everything as he wrestled down a lion and he prevailed over the lion? Wouldn't it be great? And uh, I read a story about a guy that had a bobcat come after him and he was able, even though the bobcat was biting him, scratching him and all of that, he was able to get his arm around the bobcat's neck and hold him until the bobcat passed out and then he killed him. I'd be kind of cool to be that kind of guy. Have those kind of scars to show your grandkids. Come here. You want to see what that is? Grandpa wrestled down a bobcat. Wouldn't that be cool? Now, what are the odds of that? Not very good. That doesn't happen very often. And when you talk about the lion, the king of beasts, David David is telling us here, this is a situation where the enemy is bigger than I am. He's worse than I am. He's able to tear me into pieces, and I can't return the favor. This is, whatever he's facing is something that he can't change, he can't control, and it's something that is going to destroy him. 
and uh, he can't escape from it because it will, you know, if you've watched enough on Big Cat Week or something, you don't outrun lions. They, they can run you down. And sometimes, as it is here, it's a physical danger for the children of God. That does happen. That does happen. But sometimes it's spiritual danger. I couldn't help but think of 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That sounds a lot like being torn apart, doesn't it? And the things that threaten us in this life remind us of the eternal, unrelenting suffering that the lost will suffer in hell. I think every once in a while trouble comes into your life unexpectedly and even in the little things that just frustrate you. Maybe a little job you're trying to do and every time you get the screw just about in the hole it falls off and you have to dig it out and maybe find another one. Those little things that happen, they're designed to show us just a tiny, 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 tiny little bit of the reality of hell. Now the lost world gets this because they all think that hell is here on earth and they think that life is hellish and that they're going to go to heaven because they've already been through hell here on earth. Now that's just a preview of coming attractions. That's just a glimpse. That's just, to use an old word, a foretaste of what is to come. And I think it's a warning for them and I think it also is something for us to remind us of where we would be if it were not for Christ. I wish I were spiritual enough and mature enough that when those things happened to me, I didn't get angry and frustrated. I wish I were mature enough to go, Lord, thank you that I don't have an eternity of this. Thank you that Jesus died so I don't have an eternity far worse than this. My goodness, folks, if you can't handle a bad driver pulling out in front of you, what are you going to do with the fires of hell for eternity? You talk about frustration and anger and hopelessness and all of that. That's what awaits the lost when they go to hell. And God has designed this world to have just enough trouble in it to make us tender, to remind us of what he has done for us, and also so that we can be compassionate toward the people that we're around. There's nothing good that is going to happen to them after this life. I was watching something that had to do with a criminal who killed himself, and somebody said, oh, they've escaped. And I thought, no, they haven't. No, they haven't. Suicide's not the way out, Right? And so we think about these kind of things and we need to be reminded we don't think enough about it. Uh, John MacArthur, I saw a, a paragraph that he said uh, that's on your screen. Hell will have no friendships, no fellowship, no camaraderie, no comfort. It will not even have the debauched pleasures in which the ungodly love to revel on earth. There will be no pleasure in hell of any kind or degree, only torment day and night forever and ever. And that's out of Revelation 20. Let that sink in. Can you even begin to fathom that? I can't. Can you imagine what it must be like? I think every once in a while when I hear about somebody who's arrested and tried for murder and sentenced to death and they go on death row I wonder what that's like I wonder what it's like that every day is a countdown toward that execution date now don't get me wrong I'm, I'm a pro-capital punishment person because of what God said to Noah in the book of Genesis but when I put myself in their shoes hmm that sounds awful. That last meal that they always give everybody, who can eat? Who can sleep? What, what do you say? What, what do you do? And when they come and get you and take you down to that room and strap you down on that, that little bed and get ready to put the needle in your arm, I do kind of wonder why they bother to use alcohol before they do that. 
and that be it. Can you imagine what it must be like to stand before the great white throne of Jesus and hear him say, His name is not written in the book of life. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And to be thrown into hell where there's no reprieve, no exit, and there's absolutely no relief for eternity. That's how much God hates your sin that you laugh about. He's serious about it. There's also something from Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been a paraplegic since she was 14. She's probably close to 70 now. And uh, she made this. This is a quote from her website. Here's an understatement. Battling stage 3 breast cancer. Can you imagine? Hadn't she been through enough? Is no fun. One day when my husband, Ken, was driving me home from chemotherapy, we discussed how sufferings are, look at this, I like the way she puts this, splashovers of hell, gritty, gut-wrenching reminders of the horrors Christ rescued us from. And that's the rescue, the word we've been looking at and talking about in here. True believers get it, and they understand this. It's not just something they add to their life. It's not just a club that they join. It's not just some little fun thing that they add on to their life. It's not cotton candy at the fair. They understand we were headed for a devil's hell, the lake of fire, the second death for eternity. Number five, believers also see a thing called exclusivity. We don't look and say, oh, Lord, save me, and then go, uh, you know, uh, I could have gone five different ways. This one's the one that works for me. That's what the world says. All roads lead to heaven, and they all, just, you know, whatever road you take, it's, it's all going the same way. Now, we understand something, and David understood it as well, because he said, deliver me um, until there's no one, because there's no one else to deliver me, we could translate that verse. David said, if I get to the point where I don't have you, there's nobody else. If not you, there is no one. Well, that's really the truth. There is nowhere else to turn because there is no one else who can save. And that's why you are so blessed to have heard the gospel, to have heard about Jesus. So many people have not heard of Jesus all around the world, but you have. You have. That's the graciousness and the kindness of God. You've heard it so much it makes you yawn. You've heard it so much that sometimes when it's talked about or you read about it, you kind of skip it. You, I already know that. You need to stop and think about it. You are privileged to know this. And there are not many roads to God. There's only one who can save. And God, through His promises and the atoning death of His Son, God alone is worthy of our trust and if God did not rescue him there would be no deliverance from this attack both deliver in verse 1 and rescue in verse 2 are from the same Hebrew word Natsal it conveys the idea of being removed from imminent danger and harm according to Steve Lawson well we've got far more than that to praise God for can you even imagine going to hell and yet you're worthy of it? I'm worthy of it. That's what we deserve and that's where we would go. Oh, but the kindness and goodness of God who came and intervened, died on the cross and rescued us from our sins and from the roaring lion. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And to the apostle Paul I say, Amen. Revelation chapter 5 verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And might I add... That's because there's no one else who is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slave, slain. Hallelujah to the one 
who gave his all for us, the only one who is worthy of our praise and the only one who is worthy of our trust because he is the only one who can redeem. And you are very privileged and honored to be a part of his family, to know him and to be able to call upon his name and to know that you have a wonderful future awaiting you and you have also hope in this life because he indeed loves you. He set his affections upon you and he lives in you. He's given you himself. He's given you his power. He's given you grace and he walks with you through all of the trials of life. So... It's a win-win situation, whatever we face. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that in spite of everything the world would throw at us, everything that the enemy would throw at us, all of the things that are caused by our own stupidity and our own sin, none of those things, and all of those things combined, still don't take away from the fact that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is worthy. And Jesus has paid for all of our sin through his death, the shedding of his precious blood. And so tonight we want to say thank you for the affirmation that we are children of God. Thank you for what David went through. Thank you for the way he recorded it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that it's been preserved so that we can study it tonight. And thank you that it gives us the ability to see what a true believer looks like. And it also is our opportunity to be able to say, I am or I'm not. And for those that can say, I am a true believer, I pray tonight that the Spirit of God is giving them affirmation and blessed assurance. And for those who might say, I don't match up to any of that, I pray tonight that the Spirit would give them conviction and give them faith and draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord. Your word doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent forth. And our prayer tonight is may these two verses do what they are supposed to do, what they've been ordained to do in our life for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay.